Amen, and I want to thank you for this opportunity to be with you and for your hospitality. I bring you greetings, as Bert mentioned, from the Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Your brothers and sisters there are worshiping with you even as we speak. I want to invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 15, and we will be looking together at the song of victory, which in some ways is the very first psalm of praise in the Bible. So what has just happened is God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he's brought them through the Red Sea, and when the waters closed over the Egyptians and the people of Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, they sang this song of praise. And as we, cont- as we start to look at this passage together, I first want to tell you what I think Moses is doing here in Exodus 15. Moses means, he intends to give to the people of Israel a song that they will sing to prepare them for what is coming. So as we're going to see, we're we're going to reach a certain point in this song where Moses is going to turn from singing praise for what God has just done for them in the past at the Red Sea and in the Exodus, and he's going to look forward to what God is going to do for them in the future when they enter the land of Canaan. So in a way, the worship that is represented in this song is teaching Israel to look back so that they can look forward. And this is what worship does. Even as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul said, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we look back on the cross to look forward to his return. And I think what Moses wanted to do was give Israel a song to sing so that when they encountered difficulty, they would remember what God had done for them in the past, and they would expect him to do this kind of thing for them in the future. Now, I'm in the state of Georgia, and so I hope you won't mind me using an an anecdote that has to do with somebody associated with the University of Tennessee's football program, uh, Peyton Manning. Uh, I, know, I know you won't mind this because, you know, recent, Christians are wonderful people. Recently, I had the opportunity to preach this text in Egypt. So I was preaching about the defeat of Egypt to Egyptians. And, and you know, they're Christians, so they love to hear about the mighty work of God. So I know you won't mind me mentioning Peyton Manning. Um, in, in a recent book called The Right Call, the sports writer Sally Jenkins talks about how Peyton Manning once said, panic is what happens when you don't know what the heck you're going to do. Now, I've edited that, that, that quotation slightly, as you can imagine. Panic is what happens when you don't know what you're going to do. So the song that we're going to look at is intended to keep Israel from panic. It's intended to teach them that the next time they get into difficulty, they should remember what God has done for them in the past. And they should expect the Lord to come through for them in the same way that he did in the past, in the present, and in the future. I think that's a big part of what's going on in this song. As we approach Exodus 15, I also want to say that this is not only spirit-inspired scripture. This passage is one of the great works of art that we possess in the world. This passage, in my opinion... You know, I'm not a, an art historian, and I'm not a connoisseur or anything like that, but I've, I've had the opportunity to travel to some places and see some magnificent works of art 
A couple of years ago, I, I was able to travel with my son on his senior trip to Rome, and we entered the Sistine Chapel, and I was familiar with the the painting in the middle where God is touching Adam's, or almost touching Adam's finger, but I did not know that that is a 5,000 square foot ceiling that is covered with paintings, all of which tell essentially the whole story of the Bible mixed in with the whole story of, of Western philosophy, and, and the, it's almost like the history of the world depicted there on, on that ceiling and in that artwork. Well, this song is a piece of art of that quality. Moses was a literary genius. And to help you appreciate the genius of our brother Moses, I want to tell you briefly about the the architecture of this song, and and we're going to go through it according to the way that Moses has structured it so that hopefully you'll, you'll get a feel for how Moses has built this thing. What I'm about to tell you, you know, we sang a couple of songs just now uh, by Keith Getty and some other people, and, and in these songs that, that, that we've sung, there's a recognizable pattern or a recognizable formula that you know it's happening even if you don't think about it. You're going to have a verse, and then there's going to be a chorus, and then you're going to have another verse, and then the chorus again, and then maybe you'll have a bridge and then you'll go maybe to the third verse, and then maybe you'll conclude with the chorus again. It's a recognizable pattern. We know how it works. We don't even have to think about it. Moses' audience, I think, was as familiar with the pattern that I'm about to describe to you as we are with the pattern of our hymns and songs. Now, there's a, there's a technical term for this kind of pattern that I'll just insert here for the eggheads among us, myself included. Uh, this is called a chiasm. You know, I hope Bert's not upset with me for going all into the weeds here. But the, the word chiasm is built off the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. And, and what's going to happen is the first part's going to correspond to the last part, and then the second to the second to last, third to the third to the last, and then there's going to be a central turning point. But I'm going to turn this thing up on its head like a pyramid, and I'm going to use the, sort, some of the features of this room uh, to, to, to sort of illustrate the chiasm for you. And my hope is that what you'll do is maybe take notes on the verse numbers and, and maybe write down what's going on in each section and then associate it with the structure of the room or the, the features of the room that I'm going to point to, and, and this will be a way for you to remember uh, the movement of thought in this song of the sea. So we're going to begin with verses 1 and 2, and then verses 20 and 21. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2, and I want to invite you to associate verses 1 and 2 with that wall over there, and then verses 20 and 21 with that wall over there. So these, these two walls, you can see even in the room, they match one another. They, they correspond to one another in terms of their, how they're structured and so forth. Look with me at verse 1. Then Moses... And the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now we'll come back to verse 2 in just a moment. Let me invite you to drop your eyes down to verse 20. Then Miriam, and she's in the place of Moses, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women, and and at this point I want to note that you've got Miriam and the women in verse 20, and in verse, verse 1, where it says Moses and the people, literally it's Moses and the sons of Israel, 
I don't know if any of the modern translations do it that way, but that's what the Hebrew actually says. Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So it's almost like Moses and the men are over here on one side, and they say, I will sing to the Lord. And then Miriam and the women are over here on the other side, and what they say is, sing to the Lord. So the men, they lead out, I will sing. And the, and the women respond, yes, sing. And, and that's really the only difference between the two statements. If you look at the rest of verse 21, sing to the Lord. And then all the words that follow are exactly the same as they are in verse 1. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This kind of repetition is, is the way that the biblical authors structure their material. When they want to mark a beginning and an end of a unit, they'll often repeat whole phrases like what we're seeing right here. So think about what's happened and think about what they're doing. They've, they've just seen the Lord smash Egypt. And at that point, Egypt was the world superpower, and they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And then their, their cry rises up to the Lord, and the Lord sees their suffering, and he knows, and he raises up Moses, and he sends him into Pharaoh to say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. And if you do not let my son go, I will kill your firstborn son. And then you have the sequence of the plagues, and then the plague of the firstborn, and finally, at the end of the ten plagues, Pharaoh says, yes, get out, go. And so the people, they gird up their loins, and they flee Egypt in haste, and then you remember what happened. They get to the shores of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has changed his mind. And here comes the army of Pharaoh, and the people of Israel are trapped between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. And you remember what they said? They said to Moses, is it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you bring us out in the wilderness to, to, to die in the wilderness? And, and the Lord says to Moses, lift your hand and part the waters. And the, splice, the seas split and they pass through on dry ground and then the waters close on the Egyptians. And the people say in response, verses 1 and verse 21, I will sing to the Lord. They are giving credit where credit is due. They're not pounding their chest. They're not raising their arms and saying, bring on the praise to me. No, they are singing to the Lord because he is the one who triumphed gloriously. He is the one who threw the horse and the rider into the sea. And then look at what they say in verse 2 of, of Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. These are, these are recently liberated slaves acknowledging we had no strength. We had no might. We had no weapons. We had no power. We had no leverage. We had nothing with which to compel Pharaoh to let us go. The Lord is our strength. And then going along with that, the Lord is my strength and my song. He is the one they sing. And he has become my salvation. And then look at the rest of verse 2 there. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And I just want to insert here a note of application to the men in the room. 
Recently, I, I wasn't able to be at this event. I didn't get invited. But one of my fellow elders, he's kind of a mover and shaker in Louisville politics, and he got invited to, to this event where Riley Gaines spoke. You may, you may be familiar with this young lady named Riley Gaines. She was one of the top swimmers in the nation, and she was in position to win national championships, and then some scoundrels who are promoting insanity, allowed a biological male to enter the races and win the races. No surprise there, is it? And, and Riley Gaines was talking about how defrauded she felt, how wronged she felt, and how, how appalling and, and traumatic and, and wretched it was to be in a locker room changing into and out of her swimsuit with a male doing the same thing in the locker room with her. And she said to these men, these political movers and shakers, where were the men supposed to protect us from this, from this outrage? And the point she's making is, when good men do nothing, bad men advance. And I would say the same thing to the brothers in the room. When fathers do nothing, the faith will not be passed on. This is our responsibility. Moses is teaching the people of Israel to sing, my father's God. Brothers, we need to step up. If you are not leading your family spiritually, you need to start doing so. We need to stop having weak, women-led Christianity in America. It needs to stop being the situation that the women are the spiritual ones. It needs to be the situation that the men step up and lead. So, brothers, I would encourage you to take notes on this structure I'm telling you about, and then you gather your family together. Some point today, this afternoon, tonight, before you put the kids to bed, and you do what Moses called the fathers to do in Deuteronomy 6. You teach the word diligently to your children, to your sons. And you talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you rise up and when you lie down. You don't leave this to your wife. You need to step up and do it. And and here's a great thing for you to do. You just walk through this structure that I'm giving you, verses 1 and 2, verses 20 and 21, and you quiz the rest of the family on what they heard. You ask them what stuck out to them, and, and you just walk them through the passage. Inculcate the Bible in your family. Moses says, this is my God, I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Just a note here, you may notice that verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation, was in Psalm 118 verse 14. And, And I think the psalmist has learned from Exodus 15 exactly what Moses intended. So we're going to see in this song that Moses is basically saying the way that God saved us at the Exodus is the way that God is going to save us in the future. And in Psalm 118, they're celebrating the coming of the Davidic king who says in that song, open to me the gates of righteousness and I will enter through them. And then the people are gathered at the the temple and they say, we welcome you from the house of our God. They're, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and this is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. And in that song of praise in Psalm 118, celebrating the coming of the Messiah, they're quoting the song of the sea, as if to say the salvation that the Lord Jesus is going to bring is just a redo of the salvation that we saw at the Exodus from Egypt. This is the way the Old Testament talks about it. This is the way the New Testament's going to talk about it. And, and you see a similar thing in Isaiah 12 too, where Exodus 15 
2 is also quoted, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Uh, Just one more note of application here from verses 1 and 2 and verses 20 and 21. The Lord deserves praise. The Lord is worthy of our obedience to Paul's commands in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, where where the apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. He's worthy of that. He deserves that. We want to be people who learn from the, the failures of the Israelites. They'd just seen the ten plagues. They should get to the Red Sea, and they should hear the army of Pharaoh coming, and their response should be, well, those guys have no chance. We don't know what the Lord's going to do, but these people have no chance against us because the Lord is on our side. And that's not how they respond. They get through the Red Sea, and they get onto the wilderness, and they should see that they have no food, and they should look at one another and say, I don't know what he's going to do to feed us, but it's going to be impressive. This is going to be awesome. And then they get out there, the next chapter, Exodus 17, they have no water. And again, their response should be, this is going to be good. We don't know what he's going to do yet, but this is going to be good. And that's not how they respond, is it? Over and over and over again, they say to Moses, would that we were back in Egypt where we had garlic and leeks and onions. No, you didn't. You were slaves. We we want to be people who rejoice always, pray without ceasing in everything. We want to learn. Look at what the Lord has done for us in the past. We can be confident that he's going to use us, use this for good. Whatever it is that comes into our lives, he deserves praise. Okay, so that's verses 1 and 2, verses 20 and 21. Next, in here, I'm going to use uh, the ceiling between the wall and this uh, projector on each side. Okay, so the ceiling up to the projector here for verses 3 and 4 and verses 18 and 19. Look, at me at, look with me at verses 3 and 4 where, where Moses teaches them to sing, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then look down at verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, one of the things that this, this structure does this chiastic structure or this pedimental structure. You could, you could call it a paneled or a mirrored structure. One of the things that it does is it sets these statements across from one another and it establishes a relationship between them that is meant to be mutually interpreted. So it's as though Moses is inviting his audience to consider the relationship between the Lord is a man of war and the Lord will reign forever and ever. And it's an, it's an obvious relationship, isn't it? He's going to reign forever and ever because he's an unassailable man of war. There is no one who can overcome the Lord. I think that's the point that Moses is driving at by positioning these things across from one another. And then the next statements in verses 4 and 19 also parallel one another. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Same thing in verse 19. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So Moses has clearly paralleled these statements, a statement about the Lord, and then a statement about the Lord throwing the Egyptians into the sea. Point of application from this, be confident in God. Okay, first application, he, 
He deserves praise. Second application, be confident in God. There's this great passage in Isaiah 54 where Isaiah is clearly alluding back to the Exodus, and he's, he's alluding to the way that the people girded up their loins and fled Egypt in haste. And he says, you will not go out in haste. And, and he talks about how the, the, the trees and the fields will break forth before you, and, and the Lord will go before you and be your rear guard. And it's just like the, the pillar of fire and cloud that leads Israel out to the Red Sea, and then here comes the army, and, and then the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud moves to be behind the people of Israel so that Egypt doesn't come near Israel all night long. And in that passage, as Isaiah, he's talking about the future salvation that God is going to do for his people. I mean, he's ultimately predicting the coming of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53 is right before Isaiah 54. And Isaiah says to the people of Israel, no weapon forged against you shall stand. That's, that's the guarantee the Lord gives to his people. No weapon forged against you shall stand. And, and the, the point of that is be confident in God. He will defend you. I, I love the way the New American Standard translations uh, renders Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 11. The translation reads, The Lord is with me like a dread champion. That's a great phrase. The Lord is with me like a dread champion. Be confident in God. Okay, so verses 1 and 2 and 20 and 21 correspond to one another. Verses 3 and 4, verses 18 and 19. Now, we're going to use these projectors on either side for the next units, and these units are a little bit longer. We've got verses 5 through 10 and verses 13 through 17. And you may say to me, well, how do you know that these units... Are, are, are brack- how, how do you know the, this is a unit, verses 5 through 10? Well, in both cases, with verses 5 through 10 and verses 13 through 17, Moses brackets this material with similar statements. So if you look at verse 5, it says, the floods covered them, and then he uses that same verb down in verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. So in verses 5 and 10, the waters cover the Egyptians. And then look at the next statement in verse 5. They went down into the depths like a stone. Look down at verse 10. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So in both verses 5 and 10, the waters cover the Egyptians, and then the Egyptians are compared to something solid that sinks in the sea. And and thereby, Moses is bracketed verses 5 through 10 as a unit. And everything in this unit deals with the exodus from Egypt, and, and particularly the Red Sea. One other note on this word covered, Um, this is the same verb that's used back in Exodus 14 verse 28 when it says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And this is also the verb used in the flood narrative. And, And if you remember there, it's used to describe the waters covering all the high mountains. And then that phrase there in Exodus 14, 28, the waters returned, these are the same Hebrew words in the same order when it says the waters receded, I believe is the way that it's translated back in, uh, one of these statements is in Genesis seven twenty five. the other is in Genesis 8, 3. Now, I think what Moses is doing is he's establishing a relationship between the defeat of the wicked generation at the flood and the defeat 
of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And in both cases, the redeemed are delivered, we might say, through water. And in the New Testament, baptism is likened to the flood and to the, to the Red Sea crossing. And, and I think the, the idea is God's righteous wrath coming in judgment against the wicked, that's like floodwaters overwhelming the rebels, both at the flood and at the Red Sea. Meanwhile, God's people are delivered through those floodwaters, and they're saved through the waters, we might say. I think it's imagery like this that prompted the Lord Jesus to say, you remember uh, the, the sons of Zebedee come to him, and they say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he says, well, I need to hear it first. And, and they say, we want to sit on your right hand and your left when you come in your kingdom. And you remember what he said. He said, I have a baptism to undergo. And then he, then he goes on to say, I have a cup to drink. Can you drink the cup that I have to drink? And what he's talking about is the crucifixion. But he likens his being crucified on the cross to his being immersed in the waters of God's judgment, the flood waters of God's wrath. I think that's why he uses the imagery of a baptism. He's essentially saying, I am going to be baptized on behalf of my people in the flood waters of God's wrath. And this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and Peter in 1 Peter 3, this is why they compare baptism to the flood and to the crossing of the Red Sea. Because those of us who are united to Christ by faith, we're we're united to him in his death and resurrection. And his baptism in the floodwaters of God's wrath counts for us. And this is why we, we go under the water to die with him and come up out of the water to live a new life. It, we're depicting the way that, that by faith in Christ, he was baptized in our place into the floodwaters of God's wrath. Uh, look with me there at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Back in Exodus chapter 6, you you may remember that context in Exodus 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 5, the Lord sends Moses into Pharaoh, and, and and he tells him to say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh. And I would just note here, maybe you're aware of this, but when you see like in verse 3, it says the Lord, and you've got those small caps. It's a capital R, but it's the same size as a lowercase letter. When you've got small caps, this represents the divine name, which I'm going to vocalize as Yahweh. Um, So the Lord sends Moses to say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is Yahweh that I should let his people go? And it's like Pharaoh looks around at all his gods and he says, I've got all these gods. Who is this Yahweh that you're talking to me about that I should obey him and let his people go? And now they're singing Yahweh in his name, is his name. And in Exodus 6, the Lord had said, as if in response to Pharaoh, I am Yahweh. And then, and then the Lord says, by a strong hand, in Exodus 6.1, and I think he's talking about his own hand, by a strong hand, he will drive Israel out of his land. And then he later in, the, in Exodus 6 says, by, by, by his outstretched arm. So in Exodus 6, by the strong hand and the outstretched arm of the Lord, Israel is going to come out of Egypt. So verse 6 here, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, 
Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. We also heard celebration of the Lord's right hand over in Psalm 118, verses 15 and 16. Then he continues in verse 7, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. When I was in Egypt, we saw my son, my son Luke, who's 15, uh, we got to see some of the, the majesty of ancient Egypt. We, we went to the pyramid. We, it's a big tomb. It's, it's kind of eerie. We crawled up inside it. There's just an empty sar- sarcophagus there. We saw the, the mummies, our, our, our tour guide, the way that he spoke English, he called them mummies. We saw the mummies, you know, the mummies. Um, it's it's, it's kind of disturbing, you know. There's a human corpse and, and it's all shriveled and withered away, but you can see the fingers and the toes, and, and, and it's dead. These people were trying to overcome death, I think, what they were trying to do. They, they, they got buried in those massive pyramids with all their wealth so that they could use it in the afterlife that they were trying to enter. They died and stood before God in judgment. All the majesty of ancient Egypt is as nothing before the living God. In the greatness of his majesty, he overthrew his adversaries. Verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Uh, This is uh, speaking uh, metaphorically of the way that the Lord parted the sea and then caused the, the floods to come back on Egypt. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So there's the celebration of the exodus. Now let's look quickly at the expectation of the conquest. Look at the the similarity of verses 13 and 17. Verse 13, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So it's like the Lord shepherds his people to his dwelling place. Same thing in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So in verses 13 and 17, the Lord shepherds his people to his dwelling place. And then if you just look at verses 14 through 16... It's all about the defeat of Canaan. Look at the end of verse 15. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And then verse 16 sounds a lot like verses 5 and 6. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. We had his hand in verse 6. Now we've got his arm in verse 16. They are still as a stone. Verse 5, they went down into the depths like a stone. That's the Egyptians. Verse 16, they're still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. That pass by language is the Passover verb. Uh, The Lord passed over the homes of the Israelites. The Israelites passed over the Red Sea. And now they're going to pass over into the land of Canaan. Moses' point here is what God did for you at the Exodus is what he's going to do for you at the conquest. And at the conquest, think about what Israel faces They're going into a land inhabited by seven nations, greater and mightier than themselves. So it's almost like they're facing Egypt all over again, times seven. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to do that for you. I brought you out of Egypt, and I'll conquer the peoples of the land. Point of application, we should be confident that he who began the good work 
will carry it to completion. He started it. He's going to finish it. He's not going to bring Israel out of Egypt to let them die in the wilderness or be defeated by the Canaanites. He's not going to regenerate your heart and, and, and give you his Holy Spirit only to let you wilt and wither when you face some trial or the death of a loved one or some awful tragedy. He who started the good work is going to finish the good work. Finally, and here, this speaker right in the middle is like the centerpiece of the structure, verses 11 and 12, where they celebrate the Lord. They say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the questions, they invite us to reflect, don't they? They invite us to reflect on the way that there is no other God who could create this fabulous world that we live in. There is no other God who would take the weak and the lowly things of the world and redeem them as his people and and use them to accomplish his purposes for his glory and their good. There's no God like the God of the Bible. He is worthy of praise. Look at verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Even here, it's like they're looking back to look forward. Because here, I think the the, the swallowing of the enemies there in verse 12 seems to refer to the Red Sea. The, the, The Egyptians were swallowed by the earth, as it were, as the waters closed over them. But we know what's going to happen over in number 16 at Korah's Rebellion, don't we? The earth is going to open up its mouth and swallow the enemies within the nation of Israel. So I conclude where I began in in response to verses 11 and 12 with the point of application. He deserves praise. He is worthy of praise. Now, again, Moses teaches this song to prepare Israel for what they face. Israel's problem was that they didn't they don't seem to have realized what the Lord was doing, what he was up to, and they didn't keep singing. Another Peyton Manning anecdote for you. Uh, in that same book, this sports writer relates how there was one season when Tony Dungy, the coach of the, of the Indianapolis Colts, he forced the team at the end of every practice to practice with a, a a drenched football. They would take footballs and they would plunge them in these buckets of water, and then they would force the offense to run their plays with these soaking wet, dripping wet footballs. And at one point, uh, Manning recounted how one of his teammates was, was dealing with this, this difficulty, and, and sort of looked around and said, why are we practicing with wet footballs? We play in an indoor stadium. Well, that year the Super Bowl was in Miami, an outdoor stadium, and that year, the night of the Super Bowl, they had a torrential downpour. And while the opposing team fumbled the ball, dropped passes, could not execute, the Indianapolis Colts were looking at one another saying, this is why we practice with wet footballs all season to this point. They were sure-handed. They won the game. The Lord means to prepare his people by bringing them through these, these repeated patterns of events to cause us to be ready to rejoice in the hope of his glory, to boast 
even in the midst of tribulation, as Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 3, because we know that tribulation results in perseverance. And perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, I would encourage you not to leave here, not to leave here but without, without coming face-to-face with this God. This is a God who saves His people. This is a God whose people respond, the Lord is my strength and my song. And, and I'm confident that the pastors of this church and the members of this church are eager for you to know this saving God. And, and you can learn of how God has saved His people ultimately through Christ, through His death and resurrection, which fulfills the pattern of events that we've just seen in the exodus from Egypt. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the glory of your word. We pray that you would enable us to keep singing. Make us confident in you. Make us those who know that you will carry to completion the good work that you begin. Make us, Lord, those who know that you are worthy of praise, who rejoice always, Pray continually, and in everything give thanks, for Christ's sake.